Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 868. The piston engine's last great ride is still a long way off. This country is laced with beautiful roads and beautiful adventures, and the sense of velocity and independence on the open road are something I want every one of your listeners to enjoy to the fullest. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Paul Hermann. Paul, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I can't tell you how excited I am. I got both hands on the wheel. <laughs> awesome. Great. I love it. Paul Hermann is an author whose latest book, Arc of Triumph, is emphatically a novel with automobiles at its beating heart. And it is the culmination of a passion for motor cars Paul has embraced throughout his life. While he's worked for production companies as a script editor and a screenwriter, writing is Paul's passion and he combines his talent with his love for the Bugatti Mark and many others. This novel is about the French Grand Prix, drivers and their involvement in the resistance during World War II. Arc of Triumph is based on the true story of these brave and selfless efforts to defeat the Nazis during their occupation in France. This is Paul's first novel, and the publishers, Coach Built Press, were past Cars yeah, guest, Michael Furman, is attempting, in fact, not even attempting, he's done it, creating his first iBook, where the, this book will be available for you to grab. And that's as of today. This book is just out. So, Paul, I have told our listeners just a tiny bit about you. Would you take a brief moment, share a little bit more about your career and your passion for automobiles? Well, interestingly enough, my first passion was for airplanes. I would make my parents ceaselessly take me to the Boulder, Colorado airport, whether to watch takeoffs and landings or climb around an old derelict B-24 bomber that had somehow been left at the end of the runway. But sometime in the 50s, I saw my first Ferrari at some car show at the Cherry Hills Country Club in Denver, Colorado, near Boulder, where I grew up. And from then on, I was passionate about motor cars. Uh, my heart pounds at the very thought of an open road. Sometimes I tell people that I don't really love cars, I love driving, which of course is a lie because I love them both. And then I began to read about cars in the magazines and enjoy differentiating and understanding the difference between an open-wheeled racer and a sports car. About that time, the first MGs had arrived in our country. A neighbor of mine had a Jag XK120. The handsome Swedish ski instructors would race up and down Boulder Canyon in their little 356 Porsches. And I found the whole world, whatever other people think the world is, I thought the world was a scenario for my passion for <laughs> automobiles. And everybody else was just standing around. 
Oh, well, this is going to be fun. And uh, no doubt what you created here with this uh, book of yours, this novel, is very, very interesting. And there's a lot about this book that I've learned. And I think our listeners are going to be very, very interested. But first, as we continue on this journey we call your life, going down some interesting twisty roads, I always like to ask my guests, for a success quote or a mantra. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars. Yeah, so Paul, take the wheel. Unfortunately, I have nothing more interesting to say than persistence. Mm. And I know it's been said before, and I wished I had some magic. (laughs) But basically, I'm a writer. And a piece of writing, even a joyful, passionate act of writing, whether it's one of my television scripts which has been produced, of which there are more than a dozen, or this book, there's never a piece of work that doesn't demand that you keep writing even when you cannot see the finish line. And the happier tangent of that is if you keep writing, you will see the finish line. There's something about the very physical process of writing whether it's it's almost mechanical, that will lead you into the artistic conclusion. Mm. So I wished I had something more magic. But if somebody wants to find strategy as continuing to fire, even when you're out of ammunition, so the enemy doesn't know it. (laughs) And, And that's kind of the principle of writing. When you have nothing to say, when you're lost in your own plot, When your characters have turned into idiots, just keep going. You know, I've heard this before. Now, I've had many, many authors as guests here on Cars, yeah, and this is a repeating thing. And it has to do also with entrepreneurships, that persistence and that tenacity. Yes. Many of the authors have said to me, you know what, you have to just keep writing no matter how grueling, how difficult. And I've heard the same thing from the many, many dozens of artists. Keep drawing, keep painting, keep creating. And I had an English teacher in high school and I was having some difficulty with a paper. And I remember these words. She looked me in the eye. Mrs. Actually, it was junior high. Mrs. Rains. She was one of the toughest teachers I ever had, but I loved her. Mark, you just have to keep writing. (laughs) So I just hear that voice. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, uh, you know, the jokes are numerous. You know, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Yes. You stare at the blank page till small drops of blood appear on it, and then you're ready to go. (laughs) Oh, I believe it. Well, I love it. Persistence. Yeah, sometimes eloquently said with less than more is the way to do it. Well, let's go back in time. Now, I would love for you to share a story that instigated your passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment in your life? And I think there is, because I got a little glimpse of it in our pre-show chat, when you knew you were a car guy. Well, I'm going to have to divide it into two. Uh, And this will sound silly, except to your most lunatic of enthusiasts. (laughs) My mother got tired of me constantly reading airplane and model airplane magazines. She brought me a road and track one day when I was abed with the flu instead. And I, this was in the mid-late 50s, the mid-50s. And I figured out how to distinguish between the Mercedes sports car, the 300 SLR of the time, and the Grand Prix car, which had been fitted with streamlined bodywork, which initially looked identical to the sports car, but in fact was not. Mm. Now, that was 
very engaging to me. But in all fairness, the book we have in front of us is a story of Bugatti's. And when I was a little, little boy in France, my dad was also a writer of a different kind. I saw my first Bugatti. It was not on the street. It was in a showroom on the Champs-Élysées in a room with Delahaye's and Delage, those high wire-wheeled noble chariots of the 30s. And I looked at that, and I didn't want to be in Paris. It was dark. It was November in Europe in the winter. It's terrible. Don't get romantic. (laughs) Don't get romantic about Paris in November. Yes. But I looked at that Bugatti on the Champs-Élysées, and I saw the spirit, the optimism. I just saw that that was whoever built that car was speaking to me. Wow. And and from then on, hang on, Patricia, I only (laughs) meant to kiss you. (laughs) Oh, this is fun. I am having so much fun already. You took me to a place, and having been to Paris and walked down that street, and I've been been there in January when the weather isn't so grand. and Not so grand. I can just imagine as a little boy looking in that window how magnificent that must have been. Wow. Yeah, what a start. Man, that's a cool one. Listen. Yes. I just want to tell you, uh, remembering that moment specifically, a two-tone Type 57 body, Gangloff body on a, uh, as I say, on a Type 57 Bugatti, that'll fix anybody for life. <laughs> yes. The needle was in the arm. The plunger was pushed. <laughs> you were you were caught, my friend. Well, Paul, let's take a look at some of the many roads you've driven down. I would love for you to share with us, as I asked all my guests, a, a huge challenge or even a big failure that you faced along the way in your life or your career. Of course, the most important part of this story is how did you come out of it? What did it teach you so you could move forward. So take us to that time, would you? Well, like a lot of people who have faced big obstacles, I fell from a height. I was one of the few selected for an assistant director's training program by the Guild in Hollywood. Wow. My first movie was In the Heat of the Night. My second was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So I worked with Sidney Poitier, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy. Oh my goodness. But I was not like today's kids, a movie fan. At that point, then I became a movie fan, but for all its prestigious title, being an assistant director is a very pedestrian job. So I decided with encouragement, you know, to be an actor. So, uh, you know, the sense of adventure, the people. So I went from this highly prestigious program to being another joker with an eight by 10 Nice looking enough to be taken seriously as an actor, but by no means an automatic movie star, mm-hmm. nor that gifted at that. And my life took the course of those unhinged lives with no real coordinates. And what I had to do was be reminded that what my real talent was, if I had one, was as a writer. So I got myself jobs with producers and was able to make a living and had families and dependents and all that, reading other people's scripts, which can be a numbing business. But what I finally did, and this is to answer your question, is I said, I've got to write a script. And I have no illusions. There are a mess of scripts around, fewer than acting eight by tens, but the guild registers thousands of speculative scripts a year. Mm -hmm. So I wrote one script based on a book that showed that I could write but was not exciting. 
Then I came across a newspaper story about the corruption on the Alaska pipeline job up there. And I wrote a kind of an American tall tale called Bulldozer about the one honest man on a corrupt construction job. And he was a big two-hearted river of a guy kind of like, you know, cuckoo's nest, didn't give a damn, eloquent rhetoric, get out of my way. Mm -hmm. And I sold that thing in two days. Now, it was never made into a movie, but I was a writer. I got paid for it. It led to my first assignment, which was a television movie, which was good, but also never got made. And then I went back to work, work quite discouraged, gone from being a well-paid writer to making, you know, nothing. Mm-hmm. And by happy coincidence, my production company said, call Alan Burns, ask him if you'll read this book we bought. He might adapt it properly. And halfway into the conversation, Alan says, wait, wait, Paul, Paul, you're the guy who wrote Bulldozer, right? Yeah. You're the guy who wrote Prefontaine, right? Yeah, Alan, that's me. He said, what the hell are you doing talking about other writers? Come see us. Mm. So at that time, it was the last season of Lou Grant. And they said, come up with a story for us. And I did. Good story about a teacher and a B story about studio corruption. They gave me the assignment, paid me to write the story, paid me to write the script. And that was my first screen credit written by Paul Ehrmann. Now, that is a victory of enormous proportions. Hollywood being Hollywood, it is the beginning rather than the end of the battle. <laughs> yes. But it's a victory. And that's an obstacle I overcame. And to this day, I'm, I'm still overcoming the obstacle of writing, sometimes on assignment, usually not anymore. And hoping that, you know, my words have some magic and some life and somebody will pay me to keep writing. (laughs) Well, that is a twisty, windy road fraught with ditches and rocks and trees and all sorts of things. Oh, and by the way, way, I I should tell you that my quest to be an actor was not futile. And if it was another time and another place... I've worked with lovely people and done some shows you've heard about, and it's always been on the side, but I think acting is an important component of a writer's growth. Yes, I can see why. I can see why. Wow, what a story. Well, thank you for taking us on that journey. Wow. Oh, it makes me not want to go to Hollywood and work in that industry. Sounds like that's a tough one, (laughs) for sure. It's a grizzly bear. It's broken many a good man. I would imagine so, and lady too. Well, let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share what I call a career aha moment. It's a time when you kind of go, ah, this is the way I need to go. So take us to your aha moment. Well, do you mind if I relate it to the book in front of us? I would love to talk more about this book, and we're going to be doing that further in our conversation, but please, please continue. Well, My aha moment was actually when my dad said to me, Paul, I'm glad you're writing these screenplays and they're paying you for it. And occasionally we watch them on TV. But your best writing never is appreciated because in screenwriting, all they see is the dialogue. All they hear is the dialogue and the narrative, the description, the character nuances, the physical descriptions of physical settings. 
is lost, mm -hmm. and that's what you do best. Mm. And I said, yeah. And I love to read books. And frankly, I love reading books more than I enjoy watching film. Strangely enough, Mark, I'm not a real film buff. And I said, you know, Paul, if indeed narrative writing is your gift, even more than dramatic writing, write a book. <laughs> write a yes. book. Yes. And the writer is king. You have to put up with a lot less static. Write a book. Yes. Ah, wise words from your father. Yeah. Yeah. Does that count as an aha moment? I, that's definitely an aha moment. I think it is. You know, sometimes it takes somebody outside of us to kind of push us in a way that they see our strengths that we right. don't see. And uh, thank goodness for those people in our lives, for sure. Well, how about a proudest career moment? Is there one that stands out you would share? You know, there is. And unfortunately, it's a shaggy dog story, but I'll take you up to the point where it's a great moment. <laughs> okay. I like two kinds of music, Mark, country and western. <laughs> uh, yes, it was a joke. I like it. <laughs> Yeehaw. There was a famous song called The Tennessee Stud, uh, originally sung by Eddie Arnold. And it's an evocative song about a horse. And I love traveling, and I love the South, and I grew up in Colorado. And I constructed a story, a screen story, about a poor guy kicked out of an aristocratic Virginia town because he's supposedly responsible for an accident that took the life of one of the aristocratic families. Mm -hmm. And he's brought back to town by an inheritance. And he thinks it's 25000 bucks, but it's not. It's a beautiful horse. He decides to claim his birthright, keep the horse, and run it in the aristocrat's steeplechase. Anyway, I wrote the script called The Tennessee Stud. I wrote a good poor man's Tennessee Williams script. And it was sent to Sony Columbia on a Thursday. They called me up on a Tuesday. Said, Paul, we want to option your script. And I said, good. I mean, I was berserk. I, I was surprised the phone was even connected. I was so <laughs> broke. And they said, we, you know, uh, we know you don't have credits. And I said, I do. I got 12 TV. No, you don't have movie credits. I said, okay. They said, we'll give you 30,000 bucks against 200 first day of photography. And Mark, I don't know what possessed me. I mean, I would have taken 5,000 yeah. happily on that day. Yeah. But I said, no, you got to give me 50 against 250. And <laughs> he said, do you have an agent? <laughs> and I realized he was looking for help. Yeah. And I wouldn't give him any. And so I said, nope, whatever you and I say is what's done. Yeah. And he said, okay. Oh, so, I, you know, Sony Columbia gave me 50 grand, a sweatshirt, and a bottle of champagne. Yeah. Uh, the champagne was gone fast, the 50 grand pretty fast. Sweatshirt lasted for years. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, what happened is, you know, development executives got a hold of it and had too many ideas, which were maybe good, but it's like putting, you know, tail fins on a Mustang or yeah. something, you know. Yeah. So, they never made my movie, but at the moment when they bought my script, the script was unmessed with, and, and, and my hard and joyful work had been so affirmed 
was a fabulous moment. <laughs> well, there's a great lesson in there. You feel really strongly about something that you've done, and you feel it's worth a certain amount. Ask for that, because you know what? You might get it. <laughs> got it. Yeah. Got it. You got it. And the sweatshirt, too. The champagne was a nice little toast there. Let's have a little bit of fun and talk about your first really special car. Kind of take us to the place and time where you got a car you were really excited about. Okay. I mean, to dismiss the first car, I had a job bailing hay on the cattle pastures outside of Boulder. Uh-huh. So the first car I bought, I had 150 cash, work money in my pocket, and I bought a 1951 Ford convertible with no back window. <laughs> but it had a Continental kit and glass pack mufflers. Ooh, there so, you, go. <laughs> you know, I drove that thing through the U of Colorado campus at summer school, and girls in white shorts just waved at me. So that was good. <laughs> the first car, I'm going to have trouble between my first, you know, 62 Mercedes sedan, mm-hmm. a lovely car with a stick shift on the column, a four-speed on the column, and, you know, that little thin backside. Yes. And, you know, the funny thing is I had a job just before Hollywood working at a Porsche Mercedes garage, and I realized I could drive those Mercedes sedans through the Berkeley Hills almost as fast as the Porsches they handled wonderfully they were compact Mm -hmm. so i think the day i bought that gorgeous black mercedes 220 se manual that was fabulous yeah and those old cars they they really had to be manual to have any fun with them because otherwise the automatics were kind of slow as slugs they were no good but that inline six um, yes yeah oh and those cars the hand-built mercedes back in the day those are rock solid they were strong. And then I had, I don't want to leave out my first Alfa Romeo convertible, but you asked me for the first car that <laughs> made my heart soar like a hawk. It was that Mercedes. Oh, yeah. Well, real briefly, that Alfa, what model make here? Well, it's known as the Graduate Alfa. Oh, uh-huh. It's the bubble tail Duetto. Duetto, yep. Yeah, the 1750cc four-cylinder uh, needed an injection pump every eight weeks. <laughs> yes. You know, past cars, yeah, I guess Keith Martin, who uh, publishes uh, Sports Car Market Magazine, of course, a wonderful publication. Right. He's very active on Facebook and just posted a, uh, a duetto tour, um, a uh-huh. whole bunch of people. And all the folks that were jumping in there poking fun at, well, let's see if they all make it to the end. <laughs> the poor Alphas. Right. Yeah, they're a little challenged sometimes, but beautiful, beautiful cars. But anyway, I um, I still have a uh, I have a Mercedes uh, midsize sedan with the big V8 now, and it's still a, a, a marvel of a car. Let's talk about seller's remorse. Is there a vehicle you've owned and let go that you really wish you had back? Now, Mark, why are you doing this? I, I have to do it to no. everybody. I know it's a little bit of a niggly thing here, but you know, I'm sorry. You know that a day does not pass that I don't miss my cobalt blue Porsche Cayman. Oh, nice. I love the Cayman. Yeah. I had one of the last stick shift Caymans. Damn, that was nice. You know, I just had uh, a gentleman over. Jay was just here today to talk about a Porsche that I have. He's writing a story about it, and he has a Cayman, and we were talking about those cars. I love those cars. I might give up my M3 for one of those. I I just love the way they look and drive. And uh, I got to tell you, that that mid-engine layout. Yes, the steering response, the even by the way, it is a sports car, but because of the way they're balanced, the ride is is good. I would take that thing on long trips. 
Don't ask me why I sold it. But yes, that's <laughs> a very definite answer about the one that got away. Well, at least you got to enjoy it. So that's a good thing. For a long time. Yeah. yeah. I enjoyed it so much. Very nice. Well, let's talk about this book, Ark of Triumph. I would love for you to share more with our listeners about the book, things that occur in the book, whatever you want to share to entice those listeners out there to go to iTunes and order this iBook so that they can enjoy it. Well, after I saw those Bugattis as a small boy, and I learned the strange story about how France capitulated largely during the occupation. I then learned that two Bugatti drivers, one an Englishman under a pseudonym and chiefly a Frenchman named Robert Benoist, who was a Grand Prix driver for Bugatti and also won Le Mans, I think in one of the tank cars, had become heroes of the resistance. And at a time when France was under the German boot, these guys used their spirit, their sense of glory, and above all, their driving skill to transport troops, material, help pilots escape, and and just generally keep the flame alive during a dark time. And these were, as, as they said about my guy, Louis Dreyfus, a third driver who survived the war, said of Robert Benowitz, he had the profile of an eagle. Hmm. He was a true chevalier, a gentleman. Everyone loved him. Yeah. And so I, he was this fantastic character. And then, Mark, I learned that Bugatti himself, Ettore Bugatti, who was an incredible character, to save his factory, which meant everything to him, handed it over to the Nazis for torpedo manufacture. In other words, they used the skills that had machined these tapered front axles on the gorgeous Bugattis to make weapons. And I said, okay, there's a story of conflict, of heroism, of moral choices with an action background. Yes. So, based on those pieces of fact, and there's an enormous amount of research in the book, Based on those pieces of factual history, I wove the story, and I call the guy Alexander Graves because he's, in fact, uh, a bit of a compilation of of Robert Benoist and the other guys. Mm -hmm. And I begin with absolute truth of this guy who became a racing driver, a poor but brilliant mechanic, who then came to a heroic end at the end of the war. But between that, I've woven an action romance, which one reader wonderfully described as, Paul, you've written the English patient for people who are neither English nor patient. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And it's it's an entertainment. Uh, Another person said, you know, you've written Indiana Jones with an advanced degree, but his his character, my guy's character, my guy's spirit, I think uh, make for a character you can root for, a character you can can care about. And he's a bit of a naive at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And his observations on Bugatti's, you know, imperious arrogance. I mean, you remember Bugatti when somebody said his car's brakes were not up to it, said, my cars are built to go, not to stop. <laughs> Yes. So, yes. you know, and his take on Bugatti and his take on the Germans as they began to use racing for political reasons, 
he has kind of an almost Holden Caulfield catcher in the rye distance, but without the irony and his own wonder at finding himself in this marvelous world of cars and aristocrats and speed and gorgeous women and his transition where he finally realizes that as much as he loves Bugatti, as much as he loves the Bugatti factory, he cannot allow the situation to continue because he would consider himself a traitor. Mm. And so his inner conflict becomes the what we in the showbiz call the action conflict of the third act and the resolution. Uh. So that's a bit of the anatomy of the book, but a legacy of my screenwriting is that I've developed an affinity for dialogue and the book is not without, you know, humor because these are spirited, funny people who then had to make adjustments when the world collapsed around them. But when we first meet them, they're the people we want to eat with, drive with, sleep with. I mean, they were great. Right. And they had the time of their lives until the dogs of Europe started barking. Wow. Huh. I'm ready for the movie. <laughs> uh, you and me both. I'll buy that. I'll buy that Cayman again. I, I think so. I think so. Well, I want to remind our listeners that this is available now. And the way that our listeners get their hands on this is it's an iBook. So they go to iTunes, right? Go to iTunes, iBooks, any Mac device, or anybody who has an i account. Yep. You just Arc of Triumph. You see a picture. By the way, my wonderful publisher, Michael Furman, who's put out a lot of fine books. Oh yes. Secured for us a Canadian artist who created a fabulous Art Deco period cover. Yes. And um, you'll you'll get that along with the book, and uh, that that's part of the fun of the book. And, I had proposed a cover, but Michael knows what he's doing. Yes. He came up with a guy who really came up with a work of art for us. You know, that cover is quite spectacular. And one of my past guests, Tony Singer, who owns a company called VintageAutoPosters.com. Yes. He, yeah, he has some of these beautiful posters. And that's the first thing I thought. In fact, I thought when Michael sent me the email to talk to you, I thought it was Tony singing me, sending me a poster, a new poster. And I went, wait a minute. What? What's going on here? But it, it's beautiful, spectacular. It's period correct. It brings all the joy and fun and attention to cars that us car people love right. as an exciting start for this book. So absolutely brilliant, fantastic, wonderful story. Okay, Paul, now here's a very introspective question for you. I'm very curious how you're going to answer this one. If you were a car, what kind of car would Paul be? <laughs> wonderful question. Wonderful question, of course. And I would be, and this will surprise you, early in our conversation, I said I love cars and I also simply love driving. I just, I drive to California, Colorado, Las Vegas. I've just seen pictures and read impressions of the new Bentley. And that car is beautiful, incredibly fast, yet can swallow this beloved republic of ours whole. (laughs) And the idea being a car that strong, that fast, and that continent-conquering ability. I would love to be a swift, beautiful Bentley in a dark plum color <laughs> with light elm burl dashboard. Ooh, very. that paints a very nice picture. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I got to spend a day on the track here at Pacific Raceway in a couple Bentleys. Oh, yes. I was blown away by those cars. Power, handling, braking for a car that big, that heavy. Right. Absolutely stunned me. The big four-door and then the two-door GT. Now, this was several years ago, but I know they've only gotten better, so I like it. They're fantastic. <laughs> yes. Having, having said that, and the pleasures of driving and riding a Bentley, I have ridden in a Bugatti. Ooh. And that is unforgettable. And without going on and on, though I've known these stories, written about these drivers, researched these drivers, when you sit there in a Type 35 speeding through a Massachusetts rainstorm, <laughs> you gain a respect for the courage and skill that these pre-war guys had. Because when you're driving a Bentley, you're going 128, and you think you're going 68. When you're in a Bugatti Type 55, as soon as that thing comes to life, you think you're going 140. Again, you're painting beautiful stories and pictures for me here. I love it. Well, Paul, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Sure. What's the worst thing for your car's interior? No, it's not that milkshake the kid spilled in the back seat. It's the sun. Harmful UV rays cook your automobile's interior hour after hour when it's parked outside, even on a cloudy day. What's the solution? Covercraft sunscreens. They protect your dash, seats, and interior finishes from those damaging UV rays while keeping the interior temperature tolerable, even on the hottest summer days. No more painfully sizzling seats and steering wheels for you. They unfold quickly and easily install, stay where you put them, and are custom pattern for an exact fit. The foam core acts as a cooling insulator, and you can get yours in different colors and finishes, and they even fold up easily and store under your seat or on the floor. I've used Covercraft sunscreens for years, and they are a fast and easy solution that protect my beloved cars when they're not in the garage. Learn more and order yours at Covercraft.com. Want to protect your entire vehicle? Get a car cover from Covercraft. They have those too. That's Covercraft.com. And tell them Mark sent you. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Paul, we are back and we're entering what I call the last lap. And I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Uh, Jean-Pierre Jabouille, a French Formula One Renault driver way back said, Paul, never drive fast when you're in a hurry. And you will always be safe. Ah, well, great advice from a guy who knows. So. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Now, would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your successes over the years? This is so pedestrian, but I'm going to tell the truth. 
it's waking up really early in the morning because that's how I can work every day yeah. before the world comes to life. Yeah, you know, it's amazing what you can get done before 8 o'clock in the morning if you get up early. And many, many of my successful past Cars Year guests, Cars Yeah guests, are early risers, including me. So uh, I think that Interesting. comes from my years of being a paper boy, I think. But sure. I liked surfing when I was a kid. So dawn patrol was important to me to be out in the water as the sun was coming up. That was a delightful time of the day. So I think that was part of it. Now, how about resources? There are lots of great resources for all of us today. Is there one you chair for us? I'll tell you what. There are two wonderful British motoring magazines, one called Auto Car. And one, as you know, of course, Mark, called Motorsport. And Motorsport has articles on car history, current road tests, personalities. And uh, there, there's never a time that I don't finish my Motorsport and I think, you know, this is on the verge of literature. <laughs> so I really, that's a great you know, resource for me. Yes, I subscribe to both of those publications I have for years. They're great. Good. Now, Good for you. if you can have a drink with, I'm going to set up a unique situation. You can have a drink with anybody in the automotive field, living or deceased. Who would that person be? I say this with some emotion. I knew Phil Hill. Oh, yes. We met in Santa Monica. I lived there. He lived there. We met. We knew each other for a decade. He was a private guy. He was not a hail fellow well met. But he was lovely, attentive, expressive. And when I was in Phil's company, I felt I was exactly where I belong. Unfortunately, we lost Phil a few years ago. But uh, if I could have, as I had in the past, with Phil and uh, to drop another name, one day Olivier Jean de Bien, the great Le Mans co-driver of Phil's and I, mm. sat together. And it was a magic time. Uh, yes. I had the pleasure of meeting Phil a couple times at racetracks, and I actually got to sit with him for a little bit at Pacific Raceway when I was racing a Lotus 18, and he was such uh -huh. a delightful man. I had his son Derek as a guest here on the show. and Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was really great. So, yes, it'd be great to be able to sit down with, uh, I, with I, Phil I, again. I, I, I have to insert something wonderful. Yes. I have a photo of my son, aged about six, and Derek Hill aged about six, together on the Santa Monica sidewalk, peddling their big wheels. <laughs> well, that's cool. That's very the same cool. Age. My son and Derek are exactly the same age. Ah, wonderful. I love it. That's great. Well, let's get back to a book here. Now, other than this fantastic book that you've written here, Arc of Triumph, is there another book you'd like to recommend to our listeners? You know, as a writer and a dramatic writer, I just respect people who can weave wonderful plots. Now, I'm not going to say anything obscure and surprising because people who can weave plots become popular writers. Mm -hmm. And when I say Michael Connolly, I mean, here's a guy who's probably sold 40 million books, you know, his dark kind of L.A.-based mysteries, or John Grisham, whom everybody knows mm -hmm. with his you know, legal thrillers, any of those books that those two guys have written, I turn to with pleasure and I'm never disappointed. 
Uh, yes. Uh, my wife reads, I think, about three books a week. I mean, she just devours books, and uh, I've seen those names on her dresser. I read a lot of poetry, perhaps more poetry than most people. And uh, I read Robert Frost a great deal. I went to college in New England. I saw Robert Frost. I have an autographed Robert Frost volume nice. that I'm looking at right now. And uh, he, his work, his it means a lot to me. I love poetry. Ah, wonderful. Well, listeners, you can find links to all these great resources Paul has been so kind to share on his show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Just go to CarsYeah.com, type in Paul Erman, E-H-R-M-A-N-N, into the search bar, and that page will pop right up with all these great links. All right, we're up to the checkered flag here, Paul, and this last question can be a bit of a doozy. Here we go. Today, I'm going to buy you any, I said any, cool collector car in the world. Money's no object today. We don't have to worry about writing checks because I'm writing the check. What would that car be, and more importantly, why? It would be... A 1962 short wheelbase Ferrari California convertible. Okay, you're going to make this expensive, aren't you? (laughs) James Coburn, the actor whom I met early in my Hollywood life, had such a car. Uh And they all had beautiful bodies. But somehow Coburn's was the prettiest car you ever saw. It was sold at auction four or five years ago for $14 million. Uh, So yes. I want that in my garage by tomorrow morning. Okay, right? I'll get to work. Oh, my God, suppressed. <laughs> I drove one once, and yes, they're primitive compared to our cars, but they were fast and fabulous and fun and a Ferrari. Oh, goodness. Okay, well, I got to go find Cobra. I guess we have to go now. So, uh, Cars Out listeners, been great. See, I've got to get down to wherever that car ended up and find the owner and write him an even bigger check. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember when that car crossed the block. That was a pretty big deal at the time. Uh, sure, right. Certainly, it's worth even more now. But what a wonderful car and just an iconic look, shape, feel. I mean, uh, those cars are fantastic. So you've picked one that's uh, quite worthy of your writing prowess. I like that. You surprised me a little bit, though. I thought it'd be something a little older, but uh, I like it. Well, Paul, you have taken me on an awesome ride today. I've had so much fun talking to you. I mean, you're just a delight. I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with me and with the Cars Seattle listeners. Could you offer us a little bit of parting guidance before you drive off in the sunset in Mr. Coburn's SWB California convertible <laughs> Ferrari? Well, I don't know that I've earned the right to give anybody advice, but, you know, the car, the motor car is threatened from all sides. They want us to drive slower, drive less, drive electric cars. But the piston engine's last great ride is still a long way off. This country is laced with beautiful roads and beautiful adventures. And the sense of velocity and independence on the open road are something I want every one of your listeners to enjoy to the fullest. Absolutely. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and Again, let's remind everybody how they can get their hands on a copy of this new novel, Ark of Triumph. Well, uh, to learn about me, I, strangely enough, I'm on Google. I don't know what I did to deserve that, but <laughs> it's I wrote many shows and had a bit of a Hollywood presence, mm-hmm. so you can learn that. And um, I suppose if anyone cared enough, the Amherst College website <laughs> has you know some sort of a short biography and I have a great affinity for my college, and the years I spent there were absolutely wonderful to me as a man and as a writer. 
gosh, there's a movie resource called the Internet Movie Database where there's quite an extensive history of what I've done. But, you know, to be honest with you, Mark, I mean, I welcome everybody. I never turn down a conversation. But if you read Ark of Triumph, you'll know just about as much about me as you'll find out anywhere else. Awesome. Well, I encourage all of you listeners to go out and get your hands on a copy of this new iBook. It's absolutely spectacular. You're going to enjoy it. It's a whole different approach and look, and you'll learn things you never, ever knew. And you'll learn a lot more about Paul. So make sure you go to the Cars yeah website. Just type Paul Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N-N, into the search bar. His name will pop up with links on how to get your copy of this book. I encourage you to get it. Sit down with a nice beverage one evening and start this delightful read because it will take you to places you've never imagined. Paul, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your incredible experiences with me and the listeners. This has been a grand, fun time. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate good conversation as much as I appreciate a good car. (laughs) There you go. Pleasure's all mine. Take care. What's every automotive enthusiast's dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage, and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Dot com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!